The Plumley Pod, episode 63. Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education. The Plumley Pod. Hello and welcome to The Plumley Pod. I'm your host, Sarah Plumley, and today's special guest is Dr. Nick Collistrom returning to The Plumley Pod for the second time. Dr. Nick is a PhD. He's an author of a library of books. I know because I've got many of them downstairs in my library. This morning, he's going to spend some time with us talking about the Bard and the Gunpowder Plot, two things that I'm extremely interested in. I didn't actually realize Dr. Nick was so well read on his Shakespeare. I was very, very impressed. I've read a lot of Dr. Nick's books, very sciencey, very mathsy, lots of stuff on false flag terrorism, which is a particular favorite of mine. And that, of course, is where the gunpowder plot comes right in. But yes, first of all, Dr. Nick, I didn't realize you had such an interest in Shakespeare. Where does this come from? Well, as what you might call a conspiracy theorist, I'm fascinated by the idea of real identity and finding out who characters really are. I mean, for example, I did the book on the Beatles, Life and Death of Paul McCartney, you know, the idea that the central character was actually replaced. And that fascinates me. And I love this theme, the idea that the greatest playwright of all time had to lose his presence on the stage of history and could not take credit for his creations. I think that's an awesome pact he made with fate that his identity was to be lost and it was to be given to this guy who literally could not read or write from Stratford, and people don't believe that for four centuries. And this is really the best mystery there is in England. And I'm thrilled by the way the real story is coming out at last. I think that's what's happening in our time now. And every English department in the country is just so, so wrong, you know. Absolutely. I've just been reading your awesome book, The Bard and the Gunpowder Plot, and I really encourage listeners to go grab a copy of it. It's fabulous. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. And it's actually made me want to go and read even more of the books that you reference in your bibliography, because I want to know even more about William Stanley and some of these other characters now. For a long time, I've known that Shakespeare was not Shakespeare, if you see what I mean, that this one guy from Stratford, who, like you say, was completely illiterate, I knew that that, it's not possible for someone who is illiterate to write 36 of the greatest plays ever written. Of course, it's not. That's absurd. However, I didn't realize you you go into huge detail about all of these different characters who could have been Shakespeare. And of course, maybe it's more than one character. It's a possibility. Just first of all, start us off on like the baby level. Let's go in gently because this goes out on Sunday mornings and, you know, people are just waking up. So tell us how you know that Shakespeare was illiterate. What kind of things have you learned about and how do we know that this guy from Stratford did not write these plays? How do we know that? Yeah, well, there's an important book, that The Man Who Was Never Shakespeare, which analyzes everything known about, and let's call him Shakespeare. Okay, Will Shakespeare, it's a traditional English name, lived in Stratford. He has quite a bit of money. He lent money with interest. He was some sort of works as a butcher or maybe a corn trader, and he's wealthy enough to buy a house. And it's clear that his parents couldn't read or write, and children couldn't read or write. So enough has finally been discovered about him that his identity is in focus. He did at some point get associated with a group of travelling playwrights, and he ended up at the theatre on the Thames, where Shakespeare plays were being performed, the Globe, and he had some degree of involvement with them. He might have had some simple acting roles. So that was how he got to be involved with the Globe Theatre, and it was just convenient for him to have a name that they could give for the plays. Yeah, I mean, years ago, this sounds silly now perhaps, but most actors couldn't read. Yeah, They couldn't read and they couldn't write. They learned their lines by listening, didn't they? By repetition, by having it spoken to them. There's that great line in Hamlet, speak the speech I pray you as I pronounced it to you trippingly on the tongue. This is the director pronouncing what the actor has to say because yeah. presumably the actor cannot read. That comes directly from William Shakespeare's Hamlet. Yeah, and it's so important to appreciate from what you just quoted, Sarah. That's a very autobiographical play, Hamlet. The bard is the boss. The bard is in charge of the playwrights. He wasn't one of them. He was a top, top aristocrat in the country and it was a thing to have a team of travelling playwrights and his father had before him, Edward de Vere. It was just the life he had lived. I guess he on with this group of playwrights. It's very evident the way he speaks to them. 
I know that you're going to want to make your case for De Vere, and I think you do lay it out beautifully in the book. But before we come to that, the De Vere is Shakespeare, Edward De Vere is Shakespeare argument, before we get there, I noticed this in your book. I'd vaguely been aware of this evidence, but hadn't read it for myself until I saw your book. It says there exist six signatures of Mr. Shakespeare upon legal documents, three of them for his will. Yeah. In 1985, a statement emerged from Her Majesty's Stationery Office reporting on Shakespearean documents held by the Public Records Office. The principal assistant keeper of the records, Jane Cox, commented upon this will, which was signed in three places. And she says, it is obvious that these signatures are not the signature of the same person. Almost every letter in each is formed in a different way. And I have to say, you've left a copy of the images in the uh, six different copies of his signature, Shakespeare's signature, and they're ridiculous. You don't need to be a handwriting expert to realise that they are clearly not by the same person. Anyway, in the view of Jane Cox, this is the principal assistant keeper of records in 1985, she says it is said in Mr. Collison's book that in her view, these were by three different people. In other words, the Stratford character could not even sign his own name. In a letter to the Times in 1985, she went further. She says, this is Jane Cox, the marked discrepancies between the signatures lend credence to the views of even the most extreme anti-Stratfordians. Could this man write his own name, let alone anything else? Yeah. What do you think, well, Dr. Nick? Yeah, well, that was a turning point in the whole debate. So when uh, that very official judgment came out, that the guy couldn't sign his own name, and I think things have moved on from there. I was very influenced by a book by the British philosopher John Michel, who wrote Shakespeare, where he reviews all these different characters, but he then doesn't reach any conclusion. I, I was quite annoyed by that, that he just left it all open, and that was as far as he got. And this 400th anniversary, it's terribly important that we all reach the definitive conclusion together that this guy Stratford, Will Shakespeare, really didn't write a damn thing. And let's just start having sensible debates. We can start having sensible debates about the authorship of Shakespeare once we eliminate this character from Stratford. Completely agree with you. It's lovely to have a book, actually, that does make a conclusion. And so it should. I'd be disappointed as well with a book that didn't dare make its own conclusion. Yeah. I can't be doing with these people who sit on the fence. No, no, right. I'm all for debate. Let's have a side. You man your barracks, I'll man mine, and then we'll fight it out and see who wins in the court of public opinion. Right. But, you know, if you just sit on the fence and spout a load of stuff, it's not really terribly helpful, is it? Anyway, I was fascinated to read about the Poynton book, A.J. Poynton, the man who was never Shakespeare, that came out in 2011. Yeah, you yeah. Uh, frequently reference it in your book. And I think Poynton has really nailed quite a lot of these little snippets together very, very nicely. What did you make of it? Well, it's a brilliant idea. Instead of going on and on about this guy from Stratford, or who wrote Shakespeare, he focused on the guy who didn't write Shakespeare. And he totally delineated the real life and real existence. For example, there are two letters about him, and they're both about money lending. There are no letters to or from him at all in his life. That sort of thing. And yet we're expected to believe he's our greatest literary hero, you know, the most successful playwright in his own time and subsequently. And yet there's only two documents, two letters that pertain to this guy, Shakespeare, right? Well, there was a very shocking cover-up with his a monument in the church in Stratford-Avon where he is depicted and is clearly some sort of world trader. And after the big... Folio came out with the 36 plays 400 years ago, 1623. After that, with the sort of cover-up story written by Ben Johnson, after that, the monument to the guy at Stratford was tampered with. They wanted to make it look more credible. That's a very shocking thing to do. And instead of the guy holding a woolsack, they made a picture, or rather a sculpture, of the guy holding a quill pen. And it's outrageous. And then they put some Latin underneath it, somewhat diffuse and indefinite, but indicating that he was some marvellous fellow and he'd done the wonderful stuff. So this was a disgraceful cover-up, which began then, and then the Civil War happened in England. Everybody's memories got sort of fuzzy and nobody quite realised what was going on. And it was, you know, 100 years later before the story began to develop. This terrific genius had lived at Stratford-on-Avon. Yeah, totally unbelievable. I didn't actually know about the wool sack being switched for a quill until I read your book. Yeah, it's yeah. You can see it, that you've kindly put images in this book so that you can actually see for yourself the original William Shakespeare monument and now the one with the flipping quill, which, again, they're trying to persuade us of something. When you have to change an old monument, oh, let's make him look more like a writer. Well, 
isn't that a classic case of we think the lady doth protest too much? Yeah. Not to not to get stuck into that too much, but I was I was shocked by that. And I have to say, within the first 15 to 20 pages of your great book, The Bard and the Gunpowder Plot, the idea that William Shakespeare wrote these plays is completely over. It's finished. And that's great because then you can devote the lion's share of your time and your attentions to who did. Yeah. Who did write these great plays? Because it really it's a it's a matter of great importance. Absolutely, yeah. The person who did this work gets the credit. Look at how many lawsuits there are over flipping copyright. Yeah. And yet we don't even have the original author of this work. So go on, tell us about the possible candidates. Who are the characters? Who could Shakespeare have been? And by that I mean who really wrote these plays? Well, that's a heavy number, Sarah. <laughs> the first thing, let me say, is that the number of different words used in Shakespeare is too much for one person. It was a time of terrific rebirth of the English language and people enjoyed minting new words and there must have been a group of them knocking this all around. Now, you've got two options. There's in the West Country, Lantham House with Mary Herbert, who had a terrific circle of sort of geniuses who'd meet in a house with salutary aims. Well, that's one candidate. The other is in Bishopsgate in London and it's called Fisher's Folly, which Edward Vere kind of rented or purchased, and he had Lionly, a secretary, who enjoyed this terrific playing around with the English language. And so there would have been a group of them there hammering out plays, and there was a terrific demand for plays. And the old plays had been abolished. Only a few couple of decades earlier, all the plays had been Bible plays, you know, the Flood, Adam and Eve, uh, mystery dramas that went around England. And Henry VIII abolished all that, so there's a quite new genre blossoming. This was the Renaissance, after all. And so you get a whole lot of people minting new plays. But within that context, there has to be one supreme genius, who we call Shakespeare. And if so, he was very kind of reclusive. The theatre companies who put on Shakespeare plays, they don't record any author, and nobody ever gets paid for giving them a Shakespeare play. And the plays like King Lear or Macbeth that are put on in the diary of the this company, it doesn't say, oh, by William Shakespeare, or Shakespeare gave us these plays. So there's always this air of mystery, and the air of mystery is because, we can now reveal, because they came from very close to the English court, the English crown, and uh, nearly all about the monarchy, how it works, what it feels like to be up there at the top, dukes, knights, and how they interact. And so... The central theme throughout the Shakespeare plays is who has the right to rule this country and how do they get there? And that is tremendous drama. And we need to discuss which people were in that position. Let me say that. That gives the primary focus for discussing that. For example, falconry. Okay? It's a sport of kings and top people who could go out hunting with the king. And there's loads of terms of falconry in Shakespeare. A whole lot of detail about you know, he had a falcon on your arm and all sorts of technical terms. He's obviously dead familiar with it. Whereas ordinary working class thing without fishing hardly gets a look in. So it's the upper crust. Somebody right at the top is doing these plays. And that's the first thing we need to get a focus on. Okay. Milton saying this country bumpkin was warbling his native woodnotes wild. That really didn't happen. You know, there really wasn't some guy who taught himself Latin and Greek and actually didn't go to the local grammar school. That really didn't happen. Just forget it. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned in the book that Shakespeare is given, uh, or whoever was really Shakespeare, is credited with inventing, or minting, as you put it, 1,700 new words. Yeah. 1,700 brand new words. That is an enormous number of words to invent. And like you said, that implies that there was, you know, more than one person involved in the, yeah. at least the creative process. The, in the creative process, yeah. The, the research or the study or the discussion of ideas before you write a play. I'm fortunate. I spent a lot of time in the theatre. My first Shakespeare play that I performed in was William Shakespeare's King John. Oh, right. And like you said, the history plays, all the stuff about kings and crowns and courts and all of these different characters, dukes and lords and knights. It's madness when you first read a Shakespeare player that you're expected to be in. You're learning about how things were at court, yeah. what the customs and traditions were, the behavior in front of the monarch. Yeah, That's not something that, even with the help of things like encyclopedias in the 1980s and 1990s, I had uh, information on. It's very specific, isn't it? The things that happen at court, even to this day, are not necessarily widely known. And my next interesting thing that made me jumped out at me from when you last spoke was, 
the guy never got paid. The author, the playwright, never got paid. Yeah. Well, it must have been someone who didn't need the money then, right? Common sense says so. Well, yeah, but also Queen Elizabeth did give a thousand pound a year to De Vere from the 1580s, and it wasn't specified what it was for. And a lot of people feel that, that was because of this vicious folly. A whole lot of people were employed knocking out plays. The plays were to basically to promote the Crown of England and why she had a right to rule. But you could not control the playwright. He could sometimes say stuff that Mark didn't like at all. That's the use of the device of the court jester, the fool, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the only person at court who's allowed to tell the truth is the fool. Yeah. Or the knave or, or the court jester. But actually, Shakespeare himself in his plays, for want of a better name, the real playwright of these plays, his plays themselves almost perform that function. There's many, many examples of it. And just touching on that falconry business, we're not talking here about a few glib references to falconry. We're talking about really detailed stuff and also the astrology that's in there. It's an enormous number of references. Again, it's somebody who knows lots of foreign languages, somebody who knows the sports of falconry, which you rightly point out is a sport of kings. And also astrology. There's a huge amount of stuff about stars and really detailed information. That was much more part of a culture in those days. But yeah, there's Dr. D, the majoress, Elizabeth Majors, who taught Edward Deville at some point. And also William Stanley was a good friend of D. Those are two main candidates for the authorship. But yeah, but I can just come back to the question of composition we talked about earlier. First plays that come out, don't have his name on it, don't. And they say, as performed by these players at Cambridge or Oxford or whatever, or in London, in Chancery. And there's a lot of emphasis on the players who perform it. So let me suggest that initial performances of the play, the 1580s, were done. These people, as you say, they couldn't read or write, and they lived much more in the present tense, these actors. They would knock it around. They would each take a character and knock it around several times, and there'd be several performances. And once that were done, somebody would then put the story together, okay? And so you get a lot of early proto-Shakespeare plays appearing in the 1580s, where the names aren't quite the same as what they finalised. In the 1590s, Edward Vere gets so funny it's happily married to Trentham, Elizabeth Trentham. She sorts out his financial nightmares. She's got a legally evil brother who rescues his finances. And he's in what's called the King's House in Hackney. And he has the time of peace and quiet. And he withdraws from court. He's had a, he's lame, had a leg injury because of some duel he was in, because he was having an affair with this unmarried woman. And so he has to withdraw from court life. He's not fencing anymore, not dueling anymore, not dancing around anymore. He has to quietly stay in Hackney for a bit. And that's when the great masterpieces come out, okay, in the 1590s. And you start seeing the name Shakespeare attached. And it's often got a hyphen, Shakespeare, attached to the plays. And this is quite obviously a pseudonym. Shake, hyphen, spear, Alluding to, for example, Minerva shaking a spear and representing inspiration, that sort of thing. The whole pen is mightier than the sword thing as well. The spear, you know, shaking a spear is shaking one's quill, doing all of the hard work with one's words rather than uh, with sword or a spear, right? Yeah, but it did have quite a reputation in fencing and for fighting and jousting. And that was what a noble person was supposed to do. Noble man wasn't supposed to write anything. It's a great point. If you did keep quiet about it, and for goodness sake, don't put your name on it. That was very much the ethos of a noble in the Renaissance period. The fights in Shakespeare plays are always epic, aren't they? There's lots of jewels, lots of swordsmanship. Yeah. Hamlet, again, is the obvious one. A fantastic swordsman. But you've got then in Romeo and Juliet, there's a whole bunch of people who are very yeah. talented swordsmen. You see, this is the image of a courtier, which has vanished from our culture. The courtier was someone who could fight and duel and joust and ride a horse, but also a learned scholar and could read different languages and travel around Europe and could do Latin and Greek and Italian. And that was the courtier image, which Hamlet was a courtier, okay? And you had to know the ethos of how to behave. And I said, well, that was De Beer's life. The people around the crown of England, that was their ethos. I think that's partly why the figure of Shakespeare has been remained invisible all this time, that we don't quite have that image of the courtier as the great genius who composed this stuff. Yes, it's led people to this false narrative that William Shakespeare was some buffoon from Stratford. You know, it's more likely that William Shakespeare was something more akin to the character Bottom 
from A Midsummer Night's Dream, you know, the foolish player, the one who is constantly littering his language with malapropisms, using completely the wrong word at the wrong moment. <laughs> That's far more William Shakespeare than... Absolutely, yeah. ...than at this, the greatest literature we have ever had it from our country, even to this day. So I was very, very taken with this business about courtiers. And it's true, is it not, that the likes of De Vere spent a lot of time in places like Spain uh, or Italy, I beg your pardon, which is where, if you're talking about fair Verona, how does some guy from Stratford know anything about Verona? Yeah. It doesn't seem to make a whole pile of sense from a sort of basic level of knowledge. Can you expand on that for us? If you want to describe what Shorty tried to do, it brought the splendour and glory of the Italian Renaissance to England. That's the simplest way of saying what it, apart from all the wonderful dynastic stuff and history, about 10 of his plays are about life in Italy, Romeo and Juliet, Marcia and Venice, and so forth. And they have terrifically detailed accounts of exactly what this and that barge was like on the canals in Venice and where Portia's home was exactly. And people reconstruct these. So when he came back, Tobias spent years in Italy, and so also did William Stanley, by the way. And there's only one... English kind of ordinary sort of comedy. What was it? The Tame of the Shrew? The Merry Wives of Windsor? Merry Wives of Windsor, yeah. By comparison, about ordinary English life. So he was called the Italianate gentleman when he came back because of his foppish manners and Italian affections. But he was absolutely sold on Italy. So I think that is very central for the identity of the bard, that he loved Italy and the culture there, Yeah. Yeah, this De Vere character, he, uh, also known as the Earl of Oxford, Edward De Vere, he uh, apparently was, could converse fluently in four languages and he graduated from the University of Cambridge at the age of only 14. Oh. Yep, you heard that <laughs> right, the age of 14. This guy was a, a bright spark, one might like to say. And yeah, absolutely, you detailed the time he spent in Italy and it's said that he brought home some special gloves for the Queen, which is uh, very interesting, isn't it? Rather nice and kind of personal item of clothing for those days. Well, he and the Queen were it was very close. I mean, the story I tell is that they did not have sex together, and I think that rather spoils the story. I think it was the most intense relationship he had in his life. She was the Queen Gloriana. She inspired poets and everyone in England. And loads of his plays had this Queen-like character of Elizabeth in the play. But as some people have tried to say, having sex with her, and then also who her legitimate child was, it's just we don't go down that route. That I say the sonnets, because a lot of sonnets were about the Queen and the terrific question of would she have an heir and the shattering fact that no, she wouldn't, no legitimate heir. And I think a lot of the sonnets are about this. There's a lot of speculation about who her illegitimate child was and the most popular one seems to be the Earl of Essex. There probably was someone like that. But um, So I think that's very important how close De Vere was to her and the fact that she loved plays and drama. I mean, there's a terrific Puritan movement in England that despised them and said, oh, no, they're the right to hell. You mustn't do that. You've got to ban them. And that couldn't happen because the Queen loved the plays of the entertainment. And that is why Shakespeare is so closely connected with Tudor England and basically it all came to an end once she died. Yeah, very, very important, isn't it, to remember that in the way of entertainment, you know, you had to really make your own fun back in those days, right? There was no yeah. television. No, there was no enough. Coronation Street or East Enderdale Street, as I call it all. There was none of that nonsense. So we really had to make a real entertainment. And there's a lot of marriages that come up, aren't there? There are plays performed after the wedding breakfast of important courtiers, right? Yeah. This drama thing was a big deal. The Renaissance movement in England was all about poetry and drama as much as it was languages and all of those good things. Tell us a little bit about William Stanley. We kind of left him out a little bit. I do love the De Vere stuff, but talk to us about William Stanley, because he has, of course, has the same initials, doesn't he? W.S. William Stanley, W.S. William Shakespeare, right? Yeah, that was a good start. And one of the sonnets says, my name is Will. He says it twice, doesn't he? Sonnet 135. Right. Yes, he says, and there's an interesting thing in acting and in, in drama altogether, which says this is a mantra that really good directors and actors use, those who have proper respect for the playwright, because in the theatre, the script is God, that nothing exists inside or outside of that once you're making a play, right? And the mantra that we hold very dear is invent nothing, 
deny nothing. Oh. So when you're in a play or you're taking a piece of text, whether you're performing a sonnet, right. invent nothing means don't add your own words because oh. the playwright doesn't want your words. The playwright wants his words, her words. Invent nothing and deny nothing. So if your character says, my name is Will, then you are Will. Invent nothing, deny nothing. I thought that was very interesting when oh, I read right. your, yeah. your words about that, about William Stanley. Anyway, please tell us some more about him. Right, well, he had a very royal pedigree coming from Henry VII, in fact, more royal than the Queen. And because of his descent, there was suspicion that he might have Catholic sympathies. And uh, and this is a big no-no, isn't it? Because it's off with your head kind of thing. Well, yeah, let, let's just go into that. It had been the religion of England for like a thousand years. Henry VII suddenly banned it. It destroyed the monasteries. And it was an absolute devastation of traditional England. It banned all the, the saints, all the holy days, or, or the followers of Henry VIII. And so... There had been terrific religious conflicts and feuds prior to Shakespeare's time. As the monarch switched over from Catholic to Protestant, you would literally get burnt at the stake if you had the wrong view, the dreadful concept of heresy. So what you get in the time of the Bard, and this is the spirit of the Renaissance, you're not actually that much bothered about religion. Religion is not central to any Shakespeare play. It comes in the plays, but it's not the core theme so this is a new humanism, which is about, and the fact that the Spanish fleet was destroyed by this alleged act of God, by the wind blowing the wrong way, when they're all set to invade England, that was used. You know, that gave a terrific national optimism. The Spanish Armada. Yeah, the Spanish, Spanish Armada, Armada yeah. went up. That's right. <laughs> so it's terrific new optimism. Oh, yeah, God's on our side. And uh, belief in England, that's something you have to throw in to understand this wonderful creative period that we remember the works of Shakespeare. Now, William Stanley, the Earl of Derby, was in the West Country, and he's a credible candidate for the plays that appear after 1604. Now, some of these, like, for example, The Tempest, Cymbeline, have a more supernatural and fairy-like element to them, and I'm told the meter is also somewhat different, the metric, and it's regarded as credible that William Stanley either wrote them or touched them up. The Tempest appeared in 1611. Now, it couldn't be performed because King James, who was then then, was so anti-witchcraft, anti-anything to do with magic, and Prospero is obviously the great magician in control of Ariel, his spirit. I think it was performed, performed in 1611. The fact that it could be performed at all shows somebody very high up and confident. And William Stanley, and there's some evidence that around the Welsh border, plays formed at midsummer could have ended up as a Midsummer Night's Dream. And that Midsummer Night's was then performed the first time when William Stanley marries a daughter of De Vere, the eldest daughter, and that is at the palace on the Thames, Hampton Court, and that is the first performance of Midsummer Night's Dream. And that directly echoes Waiting for the New Moon, that Greek concept to begin to consummate the marriage. That directly echoes the wedding, when the wedding happened between... I was going to say Theseus, Theseus and Hippolyta, with William Stanley and De Vere's daughter. So that, that's a possible, incredible... Synchronicity, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And so there could have been someone... Also, there's, after the first folio, well, that's called the first folio, C23, the second folio, quite a long time after, which has a lot of corrections and adjustments. A lot. And the question of who's been making them? And once again... We'd like some background or details, and we just don't have them. But perhaps the weirdest thing about the whole Shakespeare question is that there's no manuscripts whatsoever, okay? We all get lost. You've only got the first folio, absolutely massive, 900-page publication, 400 years ago, November, this month, November, 400 years ago. And we more or less know who worked on it. It was Francis Bacon and Ben Johnson, years of work. Shame they couldn't have told us a bit more about it. But no manuscripts. What on earth happened to all the manuscripts? Well, Ben Johnson's library went up in flames a few years later, didn't it? He had a big fire, and some people feel that might have been what happened. So that is part of the mystery, that you don't have manuscripts. There is a testimony. Somebody came to visit William Stanley and said that the French Jesuit, I mean, they found him busy writing plays for the commoners or something. He was just busy writing plays. And that's about all you have, which is very little. But if you don't believe he wrote the plays, then there's probably nothing else happens in his life. There's nothing much recorded that he did in his life. And it's quite feasible that he was very involved. And obviously, 
him and Devere knew each other and worked together. There's a lot the two lives had in common, a lot they shared together, and they could well have worked together on these plays, yeah. Yeah, there's that bit, isn't there? There's that in your book, there's a wonderful picture on page 44 of the front piece of Titus Andronicus published in 1594. Right. And it says, as it was played by the Right Honourable Earl of Derby, i.e., that's uh, William Stanley, isn't it? Also, yeah. possibly William Shakespeare. Yeah. And you mentioned that French Jesuit just now. Also, there's kind of a connection between the play Love's Labours Lost, possibly by William Stanley. There's a huge connection there because he spent a lot of time at the French court, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. And then you have that French author. I'll just read that little section because I have it open here. A French author commented on the play, It is extraordinary to see how faithfully, even down to the most minute detail, Shakespeare represents historical truth and local colour. In their conversation, his ladies and gentlemen are completely French, lively, alert and full of spirit. That's a hell of a credit, a feather in whoever wrote these plays, to genuinely capture another culture. Well, it is, yeah, yeah. The place called Navarre in France. That's it. Henry of Navarre? Henry of Navarre, right. The court of Henry of Navarre, that's it, yeah. Yeah, and there's, it's reasonable to believe that Stanley was there and did spend some time there. So that is regarded as fairly credible, yeah. Now, sorry, let's just remember, in those times, there wasn't quite the same egoistic need to put your name to a work of art. Leon da Vinci didn't put his name on his paintings, and the great medieval cathedral builders didn't want their names remembered as a building of the cathedrals. It was a work of art. Perhaps that is why the business of, is this mine, did I make it, isn't so important. When Romeo and Juliet first appeared, somebody said this is outrageous plagiarism from some earlier version. Well, perhaps whoever composed it wasn't that bothered about who had written it. They just wanted the final play. And I think that's one way of understanding why names were not put on the Shakespeare work. It's also the essence of the divine, the idea that when you create something of true beauty, be it a cathedral or a work of art or a play, the divine is working through you. That concept of you should love the art in thyself rather than thyself in the art. You shouldn't be loving yourself and your ego. The art's within you and it's like a divine connection, that sort of concept, which is another reason why you, you might not put your name to your work. Right. Well, thank you, Sarah. I think that's a wonderful comment. Yeah very, very interesting concept. Also, just touching back on what you said earlier about the names of the characters in these plays changing over time. Adjustments have been made, tweaks have been made. Oh, yeah. Well, they make fun of that in the outrageous historical rom-com Shakespeare in Love, which I, I whilst reading your book, I decided I'd better go and watch that again, see, just right. to see what's in it. Obviously, it's largely historical nonsense, but it is it's awfully funny and terribly well-written. Tom Stoppard, the great British playwright, yeah. had a hand in the uh, screenplay for that. And anyway, at the time when the play is set, Shakespeare is uh, writing Romeo and Ethel, the pirate's daughter. But thankfully, he meets Christopher Marlowe in a tavern and Christopher <laughs> Marlowe persuades him to tweet that. And we end up, of course, with Romeo and Juliet and no bloody pirates and none of that nonsense. So they make awfully good fun of these kind of concepts in it in a fantastically humorous way with a nod to some of the actual real historical events. All right. I thought you might like at that point to touch on Marlowe because there is a school of thought that Christopher Marlowe might possibly have also been Shakespeare. What do, what do yeah. you make of the Marlowe argument? Well, basically, he dies too young, and he gets apparently bumped off. It's very likely he escaped his death and went to Holland or something, okay? There was a charge of atheism made against his plays, and this would involve actually being tortured, quite likely being tortured, if he was to come out with some confessions, if they'd got their touches on him. And so there's some sort of death scene arranged, which sounds very unlikely of a knife being put through his eye or something. And it's quite possible he goes off to Holland. And did he write the plays there? I would say the Shakespeare plays are very situational. They must have a particular context in them. They're not just somebody in a room who writes out a story. It's somebody who's been there, who knows exactly the kind of people and the way they do things, and has composed a play on that basis. So I would say that's a problem. The idea that someone escapes to Holland and writes the plays also, Marlowe simply does not have royal blood. I would have thought, well, he might call a right wing or a far right interpretation of Shakespeare, as opposed to the left wing socialist view that has prevailed for centuries that this country bumpkin could, you know, lie in the grass and get the ideas of how to, how to do the plays. This is a right wing view that somebody close to the crown of England wrote to it. And the reason his first plays are all about the Wars of the Roses 100 years ago is because he, De Vere, and also possibly William Stanley, his family, 
were actually there and came over to England with William the Conqueror. So he's got the stories in his bones, in his blood, in the family history. And that's why he starts off writing about international intrigue and court and wars over 100 years ago. And I don't think it's viable to have somebody without royal blood composing the plays of Shakespeare. I think that just won't work anymore. Yes, aside from the fact the guy was also illiterate, you know, that tiny little piece of nonsense that everyone seems to skip over, the idea that this Shakespeare couldn't even write his own name. I mean, goodness me, I, I know I keep going on about it, but it's just so unbelievable that, you know, this is not a tiny insignificant detail, is it? Yeah. And I'm going to forget which play now. It's obviously one of the history plays, one of the first four. There's a moment, isn't it, where isn't one of the Stanleys sticking the crown on the king's head at the end when they, they like big up their own kind of, their own yeah. family's importance yeah, I think it is. Yeah. I think it happens with both of them. De Vere, also Stanley, they heroically rescue the king. So there is a glamour given to the De Vere ancestors in the plays. Yeah. Yeah, they make themselves look good, don't they? Retrospectively, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very, it's a curious moment because it's like, hang on a minute, why are you crowning the king? Shouldn't that be done by somebody else? There's very, very a curious moment and it would make sense. Also in the sonnet, so the sonnet, was it ought to me that I bore the canopy? Well, that had a very specific reference to the Queen where she was being... Um, the coronation. Coronation. Yeah. Well, some people think it would have been King James' coronation, but it, it was part of a ritual, something carried over the monarch, and I think it had to be a knight of the garter to bear that canopy, and I think that would very much apply to De Vere or Stanley. Yeah. Yeah, therefore the author of that sonnet, right? Right. Either or, perhaps. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Can you just touch, you mentioned him before, this John D character, because I, although I don't think he had anything to do with the writing, I think he was highly influential in a lot of the plays. I think his work provided inspiration, perhaps. It was tutorage. He schooled the Earl of Oxford, didn't he, De Vere? Well, as a general background for the astronomy and astrology, yeah. which, as you point out, is very much in the plays, but that was very much part of the shared Renaissance culture. They would all understand references that were, that for us would be very obscure about tourists or whatever, or some big conjunction that just happened. But John Dee was obviously a very fascinating character. He advised Queen Elizabeth, and she requested that he cast horoscopes for us, and he did a preface to Euclid's elements, and he was in a, a very careful sort of no-man's land of being an alchemist, uh, and what were you allowed to do? You had to be very careful what you're allowed to do. And once King James took over the steward, so the Tudor dynasty changed the steward, he was definitely out of favour because the king didn't like that sort of stuff. I mean, he did know De Vere. I think he taught De Vere at some point, but that's all I can say in a general sort of sense. You described John Dee as the last royal wizard, obviously because of what happens later with James I and all of that business. Right. It was all to do with astrology. And it, you say here, this is fascinating, that Dee signed his letters to Queen Elizabeth with the secret code number 007. 007, yeah. I thought, oh, goodness. So I guess that's been stolen later by Fleming, right? Yeah. That's where Fleming got it from. He also invented the idea of the British Empire, first person reply, and he was involved in, in funding expeditions to try and sail over to America. And Edward de Vere lost a lot of money trying to do that. So I think there are very references to him totally losing his fortune trying to support the investments in the, in the new continent. Yeah, there's the concept of the rivalry between Sir Walter Raleigh and, uh, da, 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 let me get there, Stanley, isn't it? No, it's just de Vere. Ah, the, he's the guy with the smaller boat, isn't he? Right, right. Yeah. Tell us about that. Remind us, what's the deal there? I thought that was rather good, yeah. He was a very assertive character, Raleigh, and obviously a bit of a hero because he got a lot of gold for Queen Elizabeth from piracy, outright piracy, and he brought tobacco and potatoes back to England. And uh, the bard feels competition and talks about the huge ship that Raleigh has got compared with the small one that De Vere has got, which unfortunately got, got shipwrecked. Could also allude to something else, couldn't it? with both gentlemen. A bit of court rivalry there for the affections of the Queen, right? Could be. Oh, there you go. I have it. I found the page. It's page 59 of your book. Yeah. Anyway, I think that puts to context what Sonnet's about and also that the author of Sonnet is at the court and experiencing a bit of competition with Sir Walter Raleigh. And uh, it's very mysterious. So why, why was Raleigh put into jail? What the hell had he done wrong? Nothing much. 
It's just he was too strong a character, really, too proud and too strong a character, a bit independent. Right? And so when James took over, he found himself in the tower. And I think that does help to see how the bard was feeling a bit of composition with, with Walter Rabbit. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. So let's say I'm conscious that I want to get to the Guy Fawkes story, the gunpowder plot, as today, when this is published, it will be Bonfire Night. It will be the 5th of November. Remember, remember the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason and plot. I really think that that's quite a interesting synchronicity, how you've pulled these things together. But just before we get to that, I'm going to press you. You're a Deverist, aren't you? You're an Oxfordian. You believe that Shakespeare was Devere? Yeah. Let's say that we've got Marlowe, Devere. So we've got Christopher Marlowe, yeah. Edward Devere, Mary Herbert, William Stanley. And Francis Bacon. Yeah, we've got to put Bacon in there. Yeah. Although I think you do a pretty good job of dismissing him, dispatching him early on. But I'm with you on that. He would be in most people's list. So if we take those as our five, Christopher Marlowe, Edward Devere, Mary Herbert, William Stanley, Sir Francis Bacon. Your number one is Edward Devere. Who would who would be your number two? Oh, William Stanley. You're going for Stanley. That's interesting. Number three? Well, Mary Herbert, in some sort of way, we don't understand, but she would have had some sort of input and we don't know quite what it was. She could ride and stuff, couldn't she? She had an awful lot of quite unusual skill, or what I perceive to be unusual skills for a lady of those times. Yeah. But she was very well educated. She could shoot a bow, I, I read. She could shoot a bow. Anyway, Marlowe or Bacon for fourth place? Well, I'm not sure I'd allow either, actually, but let me say Bacon had a lot of role in some way in helping with the plays, and he certainly brought them together and got them published. And he knew De Vere, all these people all, all knew each other, and Maybe some way he had some sort of input. Yeah, so Bacon would have had some sort of input. It's hard to say what. Well, it's interesting, having never looked into this in any great depth until reading your book, and I knew that Shakespeare was a lie, but I didn't have a clue who had really done these great works. And my gut, based on the minuscule reading I'd done, was that Bacon was the man. But having read your book, I'd now rank him fifth out of five. Well, he didn't like poetry at all. Exactly, yeah, I didn't know that. He always despised poetry, and he was a totally materialistic philosopher. He was the lawyer, wasn't he? He was a lawyer. Very dry and academic, perhaps. Totally, yeah. So your book's kind of got me to dump Bacon to the bottom of the list. My list only differs from yours in one. I, I prefer Stanley. And if I need to read some more, I'm going to go and read up some more about William Stanley to see. I'm torn between Edward de Vere and William Stanley. If, right. if I had to put my house on it, I'd say Stanley. Oh, right. I just fancy him, especially because he's there later. But yeah, I think your case for De Vere is quite excellent. A lot is based on the play Hamlet, which we haven't got into. I don't you want to talk about that, but that's very autobiographical. His relation with Anne Cecil and the great intelligence of the Queen, Robert Cecil, slipping in on their relationship and controlling it. And that is paralleled by Hamlet with Ophelia and Polonius, the father of Ophelia. So I think there's very strong autobiographical parallels there. Yeah, there are. They're also, I mean, this is a good one because it will link us in nicely to Cecil anyway. So this will take us through to the gunpowder plot. So let's do this Hamlet briefly. It's very, very, like you said, a very, very autobiographical play as regards De Vere. It could be, could it not, that Stanley wrote it about his best mate or about a close friend of his? Because Stanley was close to De Vere, was he not? Yeah, yeah. But I have to agree with you on the that Hamlet is De Vere. I would say that there's no question that the character of Hamlet is depicting De Vere's real life. All oh, right, yeah. I just wonder if William Stanley could have been the playwright depicting the great character Hamlet. Yeah, I see your point, yeah. My favourite fact was the way Hamlet treats Ophelia is very similar to the way de Vere treated his first wife. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a very much a parallel. And also the advice that Polonius gives to his son going off to France, neither a borrow or lender be, above all time, I'll be true. Everyone agrees that that is parallel to the actual advice which Cecil, William Cecil, the only one, gives to his son, Robert Cecil, which was later published, and a whole lot of maxims about how to live. That's where to thine own self be true comes from. Thou yeah. canst not then be false to any man. I paraphrase that, but yeah. yeah, that's where that comes from as well, isn't it? That pile of advice given from Polonius to Polonius's son in the play, and then in real life. Yeah, goodness. Yeah, good one. William Cecil too. And we notice there's a first edition published of 1603 in Hamlet, and then the king's ambassador goes out to Denmark to meet the king of Denmark and so on. And he goes to the castle at Elsinore, right? 
So everything in Hamlet is geographically correct, and he then comes back, and there's certain correction and adjustments because of what he has found there. And this photo is, is somehow related to the De Beer household. Uh, and so 1604, the final Hamlet published, has corrections based on this visit to Denmark. So whoever you think Shakespeare was, he has to have been able to talk with the ambassador who returns from Denmark and make corrections. For example, the name Polonius first appears in the second edition, in this final edition. It's, it's not in, it's a different name given earlier on. Yeah, it's a, it's a final nail in the coffin, if you like, of the idea that some country bumpkin from Warwickshire could have possibly written these plays. Yeah. Because like you said, those corrections that are made post the ambassador's visit to Denmark, it has to be somebody that spoke to that ambassador or knows him intimately. There's no way that those kind of amendments would have happened without real first-hand knowledge. And there's loads of evidence, as we've seen from some of the other plays, where people who were contemporaries or were there at the time were very full of praise for the accuracy with which, for example, the French court was depicted yeah. compared with the English court, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I think it's a really good, finally nails the whole, um, could have been this country bumpkin nonsense anyway. I'm, I'm really impressed with that. Right. Well, I'm, I'm glad you like the William Stanley character. I think there's a lot going for him. And I think between the two of them, we have totally got the Shakespeare identity. And it's interesting because in the forwards, I can't remember, is it so the first folio? There is a reference to two twins or something, that the idea of two people that, are, that we're very grateful to for the publication or something like that. Have I read that correctly? There were two references in the forward. I'm probably not going to be able to find it now. But anyway, we can leave that for the listeners because they really ought to go and buy a copy and read it, shouldn't they? Uh -huh. Get yourself a copy of The Bard and the Gunpowder Plot because it's a riveting read. It's a very swift read. 140-odd pages, but um, it's dense. You will really get stuck into the details. So take us through now to, I guess, via Cecil, William Cecil, to this gunpowder plot, because you're going for the idea that this was a, England's original state-fabricated terror event. And you'd be one of the most prominent researchers of false flag terror or fabricated terror. Yeah. I would say, certainly in uh, the UK and perhaps even wider Europe as well. So tell us, what do you, how did you come to this conclusion? What things got you thinking? To answer your question, what got me going? Our 9 11 Truth Group, which I was a member, we had a, a great talk by Webster Tarpley. Webster Tarpley gave us a talk. Ah, uh, Webster Griffin Tarpley, who wrote the Chronicles of. Hang synthetic on. Terror. Synthetic Terror. You're the Chronicles of Force Black. So he wrote Synthetic Terror. Yeah. <laughs> I've got both of those downstairs. Yeah, yeah. Well, he gave an epic talk about the gunpowder plot years ago. Wow. I think 2005, 400 year anniversary. So that's what got me going. I always liked that. So I've revamped it here in this book. And it's basically, in a sense, it wasn't terror. Nothing happened. It was an imaginary terror story. And the simplest thing to say is that nobody saw the gunpowder. All the terrific barrels of gunpowder are just in your mind, okay? There's nobody sees barrels of gunpowder being assembled right under Parliament, prepared to blow up the king. And especially when it's revealed... At midnight, between the 4th and 5th of November, 1605, after that, Parliament is due to meet that very same afternoon. So you'd expect there to be a dramatic rolling out of all the barrels of gunpowder by the army with amazed citizens standing around watching it. And that doesn't happen at all. Nobody sees any gunpowder being rolled out. All that happens is that the whole area is cordoned off. And the testimony just comes basically from the king. The king writes an account of it and... One or two, as it were, spokespersons for the king say they saw it, but um, there's no independent testimony. And the group of people who are the plotters, well, I quote the plotters, they did meet up in London. They were probably planning to go to Flanders for some sort of fight on behalf of Catholics. Obviously, Catholics were in a very desperate condition in England, and so you would expect them to meet up in pubs, furiously saying, oh, we can do something, oh, what do we do? We must do something. But... Um, actually doing it is something else. And so this group of plotters, after the event, the two are Catesby and one other who absolutely knew everything that was planned to happen were shot dead. They tried to surrender unarmed. They came out unarmed, tried to surrender and were shot dead. And that meant that the people who were best placed to give an account were not available. And the other people like Guy Fawkes were tortured, savagely tortured, and the account that we all think we know comes from people who are tortured for days on the rack and finally come out with what the king wants them to come out with. 
And we know now that testimony under torture is not worth a grain of, of sand, is it? It's nothing. No. We can no longer use it. I must admit, when I read your introduction, page four, just this one line, nobody will testify to seeing any gunpowder. Oh, I howled at that because I, I, hadn't, I didn't know that the gunpowder plot was a, a false flag terror job until reading this book. But even from your introduction, I thought, oh, I don't believe it. Here we go again. No one's seen any gunpowder. What could possibly go wrong? I thought, oh, there you go. There's another little tell. Just want to, before you go straight into detail, I want to have a little look at the situation because King James I, his lineage is a bit dodgy, isn't it? It's possible, is it not, that, is it Stanley? William Stanley has a better claim to the throne than James I. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was a law in England specifying that a Scottish king could not become the monarch. Bit awkward for the James the Firsters. Yeah. Also, his family were Catholic, right? So he needed a foundational myth to establish his right to rule. I would say that's what this fabricated event gave them. And just in case people think we're sort of blowing this out of proportion, William Stanley's brother, the one they called, was it Lord Strange, yeah, his nickname? Yeah. He was murdered, wasn't he? He, yeah. he? he was the elder brother, so he had a higher claim to the throne than even William Stanley as the elder brother. He was actually murdered. He was poisoned. Poisoned, yeah. The threat was real. People suspect Cecil, just as they uh, suspect Cecil arranged the bumping off Christopher Marlowe. So this was the beginning of the British intelligence, and it had extraordinary power, terrifying power, and nobody liked him at all, except that the monarch felt they needed him to help detect all plots that might be arising. Or arrange them as needed. Arrange them as needed, yeah. Just for clarification, when we say intelligence, we actually mean like a spy service. We're not necessarily claiming intelligence. It's MI5. It's what became MI5? Precisely my point. <laughs> I don't always view them as the most intelligent of them all. But anyway, yeah, this is the very beginning, isn't it? This is the fledgling spy service Yeah. under the Cecils, both William and then his son Robert. Yeah. Robert Cecil takes over, right? So it's Robert Cecil and the King, between them, brews up this gunpowder plot, mainly Cecil, and people in the gunpowder plot, I mentioned Catesby, were seen coming going at midnight from Cecil's big mansion in the Strand. So he had his hooks on a couple of the main characters in the group, and they had presumably been promised some sort of reward or deliverance in return for this. And this also had some various of the people alleged to be the plotters had previously been involved in what's called the Essex Rebellion, where the Earl of Essex allegedly tried to commit treason. He was very deeply loved by the people of England, and he then got executed by the Queen, and that was shattering everybody. Essex promised religious tolerance, toleration, instead of all the ghastly torture and espionage. I mean, there was spies going into people's homes, so you had you got a crucifix on your mantelpiece, or had you got a rosary, and if so, you'd be tortured to find out who other Catholics you knew. James promised toleration, and that's why he was welcomed. He came down to England, being welcome, people at last on this ghastly religious persecution end, and he was soon turned. That toleration hardly lasted a year, and Cecil persuaded him to go back to arresting and torturing Catholics because you get an enormous amount of money from confiscating Catholic property. So Cecil had great power, and he brewed up this, this story of a plot, and the story was told as if the king had realised what was going on. There was something called the Montego Letter, which was mysteriously delivered, warning of something going to happen in Parliament. And it's nowadays believed that it was written by Cecil himself. And it enigmatically said something terrible is going to happen when Parliament begins. And it was shown to the King. And the King says, oh, God, they're going to blow up Parliament. And he then sends a bunch of people down below, and they find this fiendish load of gunpowder together with Guy Fawkes. But that's the story that was told. So the King gets the credit. So the king can bask in this glory and it's presented as if it were divine guidance and divine inspiration whereby the king managed to foil the gunpowder plot just in time. Oh, please. Pass the sicky bucket. Tell us more about this Guy Fawkes character. Can you tell us a bit more about the man, the man Guy Fawkes? What do you know? Well, whenever you get some sort of patsy blamed as the terrorist, his real identity gets wiped out. I think it's one reason why we can understand the gunpowder plot now, because we're familiar with the way fabricated terror works, still fabricated terror, and we'd really like to know a bit more about Guy Fawkes. Some people gave great testimonies about him. 
He was known as some sort of fighter on the continent, and it's not very really clear whether these people are Catholic or Protestant, but they're classed as being Catholic rebels. When the arrest happened, he was in a little room rented near to the House of Lords where the thing was going to happen, and he was pottering about seeing to some sort of repair job in that room, and he was allegedly arrested with matches and so forth, and he's always got spurs around his legs and a lantern, some archetypal image of, that he's cast in. And there's an old man, you try and find the reference to it, who was in charge of this ground floor large room where coal had been stored and cooking there. And that's where the gunpowder was allegedly stored. And there was an old man in charge of that who would have known exactly what happened. And um, unfortunately, he dies of shock on November the 5th, or right after November the 5th. It's too much of a shock for him. So we never hear his story. Again, I think that's rather typical of modern fabricated terror events. Yeah. When you said those two guys that got shot, that immediately reminded me of the execution of Lee Harvey Oswald. He got shot before he could tell us what he knew. Yeah. The guy who didn't shoot Kennedy. They rubbed him out, didn't they? They managed to get rid of him because he would have known stuff. Yeah. He might have even known who really did it. So they couldn't let him talk. These fabricated terror events, they always bump off the people who would be able to tell the truth or would have some vital information to help us find the truth, don't they? They get rid of that. Yeah, and nobody dares disagree with the king's narrative. And the king's narrative gets put into the church. It becomes compulsory for the vicars, churchmen, to give sermons for every November the 5th, thanking divine providence for rescuing us from this wicked Guy Fawkes, who obviously gets burnt on bonfire every bonfire night and give thanks for deliverance. So this dooms Catholic. Catholics have no hope at all after this. It extinguishes all hope for English Catholics, and you get this brand new religion created in which the king is the head of the church. That becomes established in, in this country as a result of the gunpowder plot. And all this burning of effigies, it's all a bit creepy. It's all a bit sort of, um, what would I call it, like pagan or occult? Or... It's always creeped me out. I didn't really know why. I didn't fully understand uh, the story as it was told to me. Yeah, I've always found that very, very creepy, very, very unusual. Some guy, I can't remember who this was, it was somebody on social media a while back, a few years ago, made a great comment, said, um, Guy Fawkes was the last man to enter Parliament with honest intent. Thought that was rather a good observation. I do like, obviously it's a load of bull now, but I, I still think that's a great line. I think that's fantastic. And now we've got a picture of modern Sofabitera. This is the original archetypal beginning of it, I think if it could be taught in schools, I think kids would love it because they know this is the way the world works. If they could be taught the way the whole thing was brewed up, I'll give you one more detail. There was a tunnel allegedly built by the plotters. That's why they hired this room next to the House of Lords. Allegedly, they were trying to dig some huge tunnel under the House of Lords, which is fairly pointless and doesn't at all link up with the other story, which is there was a big room where all the gunpowder was plotted. But there was a story of the tunnel, which is part of the king's narrative. And the point of the tunnel is that it really locates the plotters as doing something. If they're physically digging a tunnel, that means they were there, uh, and wickedly also it links them with the underworld, the sort of evil, and you know, digging a tunnel in order to block Parliament. And then finally, when they're doing some repairs or rebuilding House of Lords, a century or two later, they ascertained that there was no such tunnel. That, that never happened at all. So well, that's another thing that hadn't happened. And then, right so recently, 20th century, they ascertained that there was a record in the King's Ordnance Office of some gunpowder being used by the plotters, but it was what's called corn powder. They say it was dud. It would not have exploded. Yes, you say that right at the beginning, page 98. You're quoting Francis Edwards, who wrote The Enigma of the Gunpowder Plot. The third solution. So it says the inconsistencies, not to say absurdities, of a plot based on a mine which we can safely say never existed, and on a quantity of gunpowder which would never have exploded. That's a very good summary. Yes, yeah, and that's a very good summary of what didn't happen. And the important thing is it projects fear. The important thing is the victims of this plot. Who are the victims? Victims are the citizens of England who get impregnated with terror, not terror, no, I think horror, based on something that never happened. And they are then instigated to hate Catholics, maybe. Also, it dooms Catholics 
once that narrative is accepted. And that, that's what fabricated terror does. It gives an enemy image which enables the British military, as it were, to justify whoever the enemy is. And it ascribes virtue to the people who actually created the plot in the first place. Cecil was fated after the gunpowder plot. He made a night, I think he was given an order of the garter, and uh, he could ride through London in great pomp, and he was honoured. And the king always referred to the guy on November 5th as Cecil's holiday. A public holiday was made. So the people who designed the fabricated terror plots get rewarded and promoted. Well, not much has changed because one of the uh, more recent wearers of the garter or the, was uh, Tony Blair, the international war criminal. So yeah, things haven't really moved on very much. The monarch is still awarding the same awards uh, yeah. for the same kind of skullduggery, right? Things have got a lot worse, yeah. Certainly have. And only the power of truth can save us now. And it would greatly help if schools would teach this fictional fabricated story. Never going to happen. Never going to happen. Schools are there to indoctrinate people into a cult called statism. Don't worry, don't worry. We have a solution. People are guerrilla educating. Yeah. We are removing our children from the schools and we are educating them at home. And when you're at home, you can read any history you like and you can research any area of history you want and read any books you want. You don't get prescribed, oh, you're only allowed to read these set texts. You can read anything. So you'll have lots of young people reading your books and going, oh my goodness, this is really interesting. Because real history is like being a detective. Being a real historian is like being a detective. You're, yeah. you're looking for clues, you're searching for evidence. And of course, young people enjoy that. It's extremely exciting when you're yeah. trying to solve a mystery. Yeah. Who's this Shakespeare guy? What was the gunpowder plot really all about? Who did it or who didn't? Did it happen at all? All of these questions can be asked. The reason they won't, this will never happen in schools is because schools are not there to educate. Schools have been designed deliberately to indoctrinate young people into the cult of the state, whereby you believe you're trained to believe that the state is inherently good. The state is benevolent. It's there to help you. They will provide for you in times of trouble and all this absolute crap. Right. That's the scam. That For me, this is one of the, the things that frustrates me the most about the truth movement, is they don't seem to understand where sheeple are made. Sheeple are made in schools. It's the schooling system. It's got worse and worse and worse. Yeah. It's academically in decline, which is a bit of a, a bugbear of mine. I'm a GCSE mathematics examiner, oh, so right. it drives me absolutely crazy marking uh, the garbage I have to mark every year. Right. As things get progressively worse, I've been doing that for a decade, and it's shocking. Yeah. This is the thing. This is why I'm, I'm encouraging and supporting people to guerrilla educate. I never give a bunch of facts and say, learn then. It's much more interesting to find out things for yourself, isn't it? Rather than being told to read a book and regurgitate the facts. Doing something like you've done, read a, a whole bunch of different books and look at a whole bunch of different sources and then start to piece the mystery together yourself. That's yeah. much more satisfying than learning a page of garbage, isn't it? I hope so, yeah. yeah. I think in this 21st century, the 9 11 event stands at the beginning of this century. And it's, it's a tremendous event, and it's a phony narrative. And it casts a kind of pool of nightmare over our lives. And we come to understand that there's a hidden hand working whoever published the island event. And I'm suggesting that teaching this event and talking about it and discussing it ourselves, the way the image is created 400 years ago, is an excellent beginning. So unfortunately, this country has a particular knack and or knowledge of how to organise fabricated terror events, and the only hope we want to live in a decent society without this dark activity by the woolmongers is to go over what really happened and get the story out. I think we all need to try as hard as we can to do that, yeah. yeah it's called real history. I love it. Not been tampered with. You go and look at sources yourself yeah. and make up your own mind. Yeah, beautiful. Well, listen, thank you very, very much indeed for all of this information you have poured into our minds and all of these talking points that we have from this morning's discussion. Really, really fascinating. And I, I'm always plugging books because I do love reading. But I, I have to say, I particularly enjoyed this. It's one of my absolute favourites, The Bard and the Gunpowder Plot. Wow. Yeah, no, no, this is right up there with your work on 7-7. Oh, right. Which I'm a huge fan of, let it be known. Well, thanks so much, sir, yeah. I will have to get you back on to talk about 9-11 sometime because there are people that are only just realising that that was a load of baloney as well. The people are waking up all of the time to these false flag terror events, even now, which is fantastic. That'll probably take quite a while because there's a lot to that. Yeah. So I'll get you back in to do that at some point. But yeah, the, for now, guys, the, the Bard and the Gunpowder Plot, you can get this on Evil Amazon. I will put a link in the description. 
and get yourself a copy of it. It is a, a lovely, lovely read and a, it's fascinating, a really good place to start. If you're worrying about how do we get our children to have an interest in history, well, what a fantastic place to start with these two mysteries, one of which is a, a false flag and one of which is a, one of the greatest literary hoaxes of all time. All right. What a fabulous place to begin. Any closing thoughts or comments, Dr. Nick? Well, you said it all, Sarah. Thanks so much for the way you summed it up. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for coming. I absolutely adore talking to you. I take up far too much of your time, especially off air as well. Thank you for coming on and I'll get you back on uh, very, very shortly to talk about 9-11. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. That was Dr. Nick Collistrum, and you can get his book, The Bard and the Gunpowder Plot, at Amazon, and I will leave the links for you in the description. I hope you have a fabulous week, and remember, your children can either be educated or schooled, and these things are mutually exclusive. Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit sarahplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination.